Hey, hi! Welcome to Someone Else's Movie, the original podcast where an actor, writer, director, or nebulous industry figure gives a little love to a movie they didn't make. I'm Norm Wilner, senior film writer for Now Magazine, and this is The Other Thing I Do. My guest this week is Jeff Barnaby, a writer, director, and editor whose debut feature, Rhymes for Young Ghouls, established him as a major force in Canadian cinema in 2013. His follow-up, the zombie thriller Blood Quantum, opened TIFF's Midnight Madness program last fall and just arrived on digital in Canada and on Shudder everywhere else. And if you're looking for a movie about people trying to stave off a pandemic by sheltering in place, maybe start there. Jeff picked Bram Stoker's Dracula, Francis Ford Coppola's deliriously overheated 1992 vampire romp starring Gary Oldman as the blood-drinking Count, Winona Ryder as his eternal love, Keanu Reeves as the hapless solicitor Jonathan Harker, and Anthony Hopkins as Abraham Van Helsing. Arriving 70 years after Murnau's Nosferatu wrote the book on classical vampire imagery, it was framed as Coppola's return to artistic filmmaking after the admittedly commercial Godfather 3, and it was also an unofficial attempt by Columbia Pictures to launch a line of literary horror adaptations. It's a celebration of practical visual effects and broad theatrical performances in the service of Stoker's fever dream narrative. No one was ready for it. Three decades later, I'm still not sure we've caught up. This is someone else's movie. I just think it's a technical masterpiece and it's a classic piece of cinema that references and pays homage to all these other classic pieces of cinema. It's just it's just steeped in lore and I mean the the uh the subject matter vampires and 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 the the story itself i mean it goes back so far so it's part of it's part of literary lore it's part of folklore and to me it just encompasses everything i love about movies and everything i love about being a filmmaker and it's it's uh, another francis ford coppola masterpiece arguably his last real significant piece of cinema before he he turned into a I don't know what they're called, a wine connoisseur, a winist. <laughs> yes. So, a vintner? I have no idea. So, I, I think for all those reasons, it was the first time too, like any any other person, it, it was like a magical experience in the cinema when I went to go see it. I had gone with my friend, and we were both teenagers, and it was he was uh, trying to chase down some girl, so he ditched me. <laughs> and I was there by myself watching this movie by myself. And like from frame one, I was just sold. I was just enraptured by the film. So by the end, I was like heartbroken. And I was I was, <laughs> I was like there with Dracula. He was getting his head chopped off. I loved every minute of it. <laughs> and I saw my friend coming up the, the aisle from being on whatever his, his pseudo date or whatever it was. And man, what'd you think of the film? And he goes, it wasn't that scary. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, it was the best thing that ever happened. It was the first time, too, <laughs> I, I really made the connection to maybe wanting to be a filmmaker. Like, how how did he do that? And then when you start looking at how he did it, you realize it's, it's, it's not only just a homage to filmmaking as... Uh, spectator but also as a, a filmmaker and all the techniques he used and, and this was even really before I became even aware that, that was an occupation that you could have so for all those reasons Bram Stoker's Dracula was like the, one, of, one of the seminal films of my uh, of my 
cinematic upbringing. I do wonder about that, the effect that a movie that vivid and that handmade would have on like a forming artistic consciousness. Because it is unlike, uh, we uh, we watched it again. I hadn't seen it in, I don't know, maybe since the Blu-ray came out. So at least 10 years, maybe longer. And we rewatched it the other night and it is just so tactile. And I remember seeing it with an audience in 92 and, and people just being blown away by the the... Uh, the audacity of it, the, the 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 messiness of it, the 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 sexuality, the violence, the spectacle of it, and just how hothouse it is, and how kind of purple it is, and it's it's yeah. it is a really interesting equivalent <laughs> yeah. to the book. That's a good way to right? put it. It's a like, purple movie, and he, he like yeah. he just went for it, and it was the last time he really did that. It was the last time he did something crazy, worthy of of Coppola, and. You hear the you know the stories of you know, how he realized it. The visual effects team kept pushing him to go digital, fired them all. You know it was it sounded <laughs> like it was crazy. And then you get this performance beamed in from outer space by by Gary Oldman. This was really before anybody really knew who he was. It was it was like before the professional, or yeah, it was before. before it was like a couple years before professional and. Yeah, yeah, two years. I mean, he'd made Sid and Nancy, and he'd done. Um, he was in Meantime, and yeah, he's done I some stuff. Think, yeah, I had a sense of who he was as as a um, just sort of this strange small indie actor, right? He was really intense, and he was fun to watch. But also, a complete chameleon. Like you didn't, yeah, he, recognize him under the makeup, and the way he the the intonations with his voice. Yeah, I fell in love with that dude, man. <laughs> he was like. He is to this day still the best, uh, the best take on Dracula in my opinion, and that's saying something considering like how many films have been done, and by the people who've done them. Well, it was this revolutionary interpretation, right, by going back to Stoker after, you know, the Bela Lugosi thing, and then the Christopher Lee Hammer films, where he's they're both very animalistic and and you know they're sort of disguised in tuxedos they look nice they're very cultured but they're monsters and then this guy is a warrior from the beginning we get to see him as a young man which was something nobody had really tried before yeah unless i missed yeah, one. yeah the the idea that he coppola sort of bringing in like real the real legend into the story i thought was amazing too because even before this it wasn't just i was into vampire movies i was like that was my thing. I was like a vampire guy. I was reading up all oh, the yeah. lore. I was like, <laughs> I was like, if you ever see a vampire, just throw some rice in front of him. <laughs> I was one of those guys. So I was hardcore <laughs> vampire geek. And this was like the, you know, I am legend vampire, not the, the, the kind of uh, Euro trash that we see now that, that took cold in the seventies. I mean, it, it came a long way, right. way before that, like the aristocracy and, the vampire that meld way before but i think it sure, really sure. you know hit its stride when you saw an interview with vampire the, the, the novel right which was also a couple of years later oh that's true the book came first but it's that i mean that just builds on on stoker right the because dracula has always been nobility and royalty but it's in the book it's what keeps him aloof and it, it's what allows everyone else to indulge his eccentricities right they don't take him seriously as a monster yeah. they just think he's a bit of a weird guy <laughs> yeah. and and what uh, interview with the vampire does is it sort of amps up the sexuality even more it brings it into the the present era at the time but then you've got coppola's movie where there is absolutely nothing of 
the, the vampire Dracula that, that Jonathan Harker meets that is normal or real. And so right away, we're just in this great, huge fantasy world where none of this is like you can't you simply can't accept any of it as real, which I think really works. I, I was I was struggling a bit with Winona Ryder and Keanu Reeves. Yeah, everybody just um, says that all over again, right? Because <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, they're they're just and it's not their fault, right? They're very contemporary actors, and there's just it's hard to make that distance. Also, the accents are a bit wobbly, but everybody's accents are wobbly. Uh, whatever Oldman's. Well, doing. I've experienced uh, Keanu Reeves accent in Youngblood, so everything after that is like <laughs> it's like Shakespeare. Oh, see. <laughs> well, he's done that too. That's true. I'd forgotten about. Oh my him. god! Do you oh. remember his French Canadian accent in Young Floyd? Oh, uh, I remember. I just remember his face doing some weird stuff while he tries to talk. That's the only thing I remember about Young Blood. Like he's trying to get it out. It's worth the watch just to see him in that role. <laughs> but like, uh, I, I I remember him hearing an interview of him saying like he had just finished something. Uh, I think he had just done Shakespeare and. He said he had nothing left to give to Dracula. But I think it's like you get those performances, true, but you also get Tom Waits and Gary Oldman. So it's like, uh, I'll sure. take those two and put up with the... And I didn't find Winona Ryder that bad. Like, Keanu Reeves is terrible, but he's still Keanu Reeves, and it's still kind of fun to see him in, in all this, you know, spectacle around him. I mean, to me, he doesn't take away from the film a little bit awesome if they cast uh, actual British actors and like, I don't understand why he I'm, I'm guessing it's because it had something to do with the funding I mean that, that has to be it right I mean it's like you know you want this 40 million dollar movie made you gotta put this guy in it yeah well he was I mean and he'd done Dangerous Liaison a few years earlier so he'd already played a, a period character and and it's one of those situations where I think we I was talking about this with somebody on Twitter the other day it's just that Reeves hadn't really figured out what his range was yet and where he could say no. So he was just, of course, Francis Ford Coppola asks you to be in a Dracula movie, you're going to say yes. Yeah, you don't say no <laughs> to that. Yeah, and Ryder, you know, she had she dropped out of Godfather 3, so she probably felt like she owed him, and, and yeah, they're doing their best. Um, yeah, a rare occasion where Coppola's nepotism paid off, too, where he fired the effects team. That's true. And he replaced and it, it to yeah, He replaced it with his son, and his son came up with all these crazy like. Apparently, they did almost everything in camera, and yeah, I've heard that. There, I mean, there's some. There was a uh, a laserdisc box set from Criterion. Everybody forgot about the the Criterion laserdisc. They did all kinds of titles that never made it out on Blu-ray or DVD. Really? And there mm-hmm. was a Criterion edition of Bram Stoker's Dracula that was just in love with the special effects. You could step through them, and there were there were these galleries of uh, of how everything was created. And unless I missed an edition, they haven't that stuff hasn't shown up yet. I keep waiting for Criterion to announce it because maybe they're holding off for the thirtieth anniversary. I kind of remember stuff like that too, seeing you know, seeing uh, just how extensive those in camera effects were, and being blown away. Yeah. Well, even the simplest stuff, like the shadows that move a little bit faster. I mean, The Simpsons made fun of it, and it, that's become more popular now That just because it's endured the, the, the Simpsons episode where Mr. Burns is spoofing Dracula. <laughs> I that so well. But it, it works in this movie. I'd forgotten how effective the simplest stuff is, this, having him on a dolly track or having the shadow get to things before we see Dracula or having him appear from the other side of the of the frame after the shadows doing some stuff. It's just so simple. It's, you know, it's Murnau's Nosferatu, and it's, it's Coppola. Exactly. Yeah. Tipping his tipping his cap to history, as you were saying, but 
it's just so simple and effective. Yeah, it really is. And there's something about, like, even the awkwardness of being able to see the miniature adds to the atmosphere of it of its authenticity. It doesn't detract from it at all. Like, yeah, yeah. Uh, I'd rather see that weird, almost out of perspective weirdness of that than the weird glean you get from CGI that, you know, for whatever reason, it's never been able to get past that weird surreal sheen that all CGI has. So it's it's just, yeah, to do a film like that in a time where it was just unheard of. Like everybody was doing it simple, everybody was leaning on CGI and him to do it. And it's a masterpiece in my opinion, it really is. I mean, it's certainly more interesting as a as an interpretation of old school visual effects than it is as an interpretation of Dracula, just because, and this is no fault of Coppola's, the book doesn't really have an ending. It's just sort of all the high points are in the first two thirds with um, Harker visiting Dracula in, in Transylvania and then the plague coming to London. By the end of it, it's just a pretty simple chase movie that is, as, as you see in the film, it's just kind of a straight line. Yeah, it kind of falls apart at the end. You wanted a bit more of a, a bit more opera, as it were. Yeah. Well, the whole thing is so pitched and so baroque that you just wanted to hit an even higher point. But I think after, really, after Lucy dies or after Lucy is killed, there's nowhere else to go. That's kind of the most spectacular sequence and the, and the high point of it all. And then it's just a series of small confrontations and people staring and hissing at each other, which is fine. But if, yeah, my blood is up. There's so much going on in that first 80 minutes that the rest of it is just sort of a, a downward spiral. I mean, it's Dracula. There's never there's one movie that twists it. The the John Badham film from the seventies with, with Frank Langella, where uh, spoiler for anyone who hasn't seen it, a forty five year old movie, uh, Dracula kills Van Helsing instead. Yeah, I remember and, that one. I remember that one. Yeah, uh, and it was shocking. Yeah. at the time. <laughs> yeah, and yeah, I, I kind of agree with all that. And you uh, kind of weird to say you wanted to see them live happily ever after. <laughs> Well, but that's the beauty of it, right? Like, that's the thing that, I mean, Interview with the Vampire kind of does it too. Like, you actually want these two people to work it out because that's more interesting. Yeah. The um, the doomed love is great. It's, you know, it's your classic tragedy and all that. But uh, what if they made it work? Yeah, I bought that hook, line, and sinker too, the, uh, the <laughs> tragedy of it all. And it was, uh, I think, really subversive too because it, it it's a happy ending, the weird a weird thing to say is because he, he does you know send he does get forgiven you, you get that impression right I mean it's a big couple of themes mm-hmm. too the, the, the religious themes that go through the film I mean you can actually see beats of Godfather in Dracula I, I can anyway like the marriage sequence and, yeah and, uh, well I think yeah, I think Coppola is, of course, Coppola being Coppola, right? He's going to reference himself as much as he references the rest of history. Because <laughs> how can he not, right? Like, it's all part of the same continuum to him. Yeah, I, I think I, I do it. <laughs> and it works because, as with his best films, he just powers through anything that might be an obstacle. I, I, I kind of love that about him. Even in his later movies like uh, like Twixt or... Um, or Tetro, it's not, they're not successes exactly, but they, they have their sights set so clearly on what they want to do. And he just wants to accomplish that thing, whatever that thing is in the moment. I have to hand it to him. That's that kind of single-mindedness is really, I mean, it's what you need to be the kind of artist he wants to be. 
I don't know that he always reaches it, but he's always trying. Yeah, it's probably the uh, one of the personality traits of, of directors in general. I think single-mindedness. I would think, yeah. Single-mindedness with blinders on, <laughs> stumbling towards the <laughs> finish line. Just get there, man. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, you know the thing you want, right? Yeah, that's a part of the problem. Is that a problem? That's <laughs> So as far as Dracula, though, and, and or as far as this adaptation of Dracula goes, there's always something that that's stuck with me. And every time I see it, I just I know it's how it works. I know it's how movies work and everything else. But it takes me out of the film every time. Every time the wolf monster shows up, I just think Gary Oldman spent six hours in a chair for five seconds of film. <laughs> and, I, yeah. and I feel so I feel so much sympathy for him. In that moment, it's like, I think that makes me sympathize with Dracula more than anything else. The tragedy of sitting in a makeup chair so you can do that. Uh, All the, I mean, he does, like, everything was an elaborate makeup job for him. I don't think, I think there's always some element of a prosthetic, whether it's beard, like a fake hairline or a fake mustache or beard. Or even, like, even the Victorian gentleman scene, he's wearing a wig. He's not really himself. We never see Gary Oldman as Gary Oldman in the film, which is kind of fascinating to me. Yeah, he's barely recognizable. I mean, like that was not necessarily my introduction to him, but that's what you were saying. Yeah, that's how I got to know him intimately. So I had really no idea what he looked like, and I think that's true romance. And he's still doing the same thing. And then when yeah. you finally get to see him, it's like it's it's weird because you've seen him in so many different ways, you don't even really recognize him. Like when he did a. Immortal Beloved, I think, would be a good example. Like, put that guy next to anybody in, in in Dracula, any of the roles he played in Dracula. It's like you can't even really see them. I think it's because they hide his mouth a lot. I don't know if that's it. But like you can't maybe recognize him underneath the performance either. Yeah. I mean, I'm thinking like around that time, well, The Professional obviously is probably his, his biggest popular uh, image is like it's what people think of when they think of Gary Oldman in the 90s yeah but even then he's just covered in coke sweat and all the uh, <laughs> all the guck and violence yeah and I think they were trying to get him to what's almost become a cliche and let's get a celebrated actor in a villain role so he can just you know camp it up and it's good I mean it's he's kind of he's one of the reasons the movie is so good it's taken such a weird not to get off track of uh, Dracula but it's taken such a weird tint to it now because all the stuff you hear about coming out of uh, about the director and and then him because there's two different cuts of that film right there's like the Dracula? no the uh, professional oh the professional yes sorry the Besson film yes there's yeah the, yeah that's right there's an extended cut yeah and the extended cut is a little bit more explicit about the relationship between the two and then you yeah, hear about it's, the director being married to, like, a teenager. And it's, it takes yeah, a Luke, whole... Luke Besson is a, a serial younger lady womanizer, and it's really creepy. Yeah. And it, it only gets creepier, like, the more movies he makes, which is weird. Like, he's... he, uh, Yeah, I just... Uh, it's unfortunate that so many movies are tainted by the people who made them. I mean, I'm, I'm sure it's always been that way, and we're just finding out more quickly. I think more so, quickly. too. I think it's like... Uh, I don't know if you've ever read Blue Movie. <laughs> <laughs> the, yeah, you should check that out. It's supposedly, I don't know that I have. yeah, it's supposedly about uh, Kubrick. It's dedicated to Kubrick. 
Is that Terry Southern's film a book about yeah. candy? Yeah. Okay. It's a uh, it's a uh, Terry Southern's book about a director who tries to make a a porno film with with Hollywood stars. Yeah, I thought that was about candy. Uh, God, I hope it's not about Kubrick. Uh, candy was a, a a movie, not a person. Yeah, really. I, I've never heard that. I actually, uh, I've always heard it was like, uh, well, doesn't he dedicate the entire book to Stanley Kubrick? Oh, maybe just because he thought Kubrick would be the one who gets the joke. <laughs> who knows, man? Like when he made, when he also made Eyes Wide Shut too. So I'm, I'm thinking like there's some, some stuff in there that's probably quite taken from the pages of his own life. Anyway, I don't know how we got here from talking about Dracula. But <laughs> uh, I assume sex and high collared clothing. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's all, it's all there. Yeah, no, Kubrick. I, I wonder about Eyes Wide Shut because some people love it, and it does seem to me to have the same kind of strange austerity as Bram Stoker's Dracula, where everything is, it's campy, but the film refuses to acknowledge it. It takes itself so seriously because that's the only way to convey. In in Coppola's case, he's trying to convey this swooning, romantic, you know, heavily religious, uh, star-crossed lovers thing that also happens to be about drinking blood and people going crazy from isolation and deprivation and Kubrick is making a movie about isolation and deprivation but totally differently and I'm pretty sure unlike Coppola he's not in on his own joke I don't think Kubrick knows that Eyes Wide Shut is silly some people will make very very complicated arguments for it but I don't know that he's in on the joke of that Coppola absolutely is Coppola knows just how ridiculous all of this must look and he just dives right in (laughs) Right. Like he yeah. goes for the they're both they both have this eerie dream logic for for getting through certain points. Um, you know, the 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 vampire brides emerging from the bed to to chew on Keanu Reeves and just it's so silly. But the movie doesn't blink. It's just like, nope, this is what it would look like if, if Bram Stoker wrote it. This is how we have to do it. I and think I love that like commitment. The, uh, yeah. Well, he, that's the entire film, like from point like from the second <laughs> The first image on screen is dramatic and operatic, and it's so big. It's such a big way yeah. to open a Dracula movie, like uh, heroic, you know, like you said, a heroic warrior going up to battle, and that's like taken from the pages of history too. It really happened. Oh, the, and the Vlad the Impaler thing. Yeah, and they really, I really like how he used bits of that history to tie into this whole dramatic arc of the love over oceans of time <laughs> it was it was uh like i said i was a hardcore dracula geek so i already knew all these details going into the film i didn't expect them at all i didn't know what i expected because i you know i don't, I don't remember seeing trailers or anything but i i do remember wanting to see the film when it came out yeah the trailers are um this is going to sound weird but maybe it won't sound weird the trailers put me much more in mind of how Titanic would be sold a few years later, right? Because it's going for the romance. It's going for the swooning. Really? And yeah, I you're remember, right. Yeah, yeah. I remember the poster. We, we, right? Love Never Dies? Yeah. We, um, we took a look at the, at the supplements on the, on the Blu-ray, and there is just this intention in the marketing of, this is the greatest love story ever told, and that's how we get the youngs in. We get the younger audience in by selling them on Winona Ryder, who is you know, like the poster child for Gen X um, cinema at the time. Uh, thanks to Heather's, basically, more than anything else. And 
we're going to sell this and we're going to make this about the love between the monster and the it's beauty and the beast right like it's all of those things but watching it now all the historical stuff and all the rushing about in in sort of morning coats just made me think oh this is how titanic gets sold to people it's the same you know this massive tragedy but the tragedy in this is that it's a horror movie it's it's not a, a specific disaster the disaster is dracula yeah it didn't really seem to be pushing any particular theme I mean, they kind of flirt with the idea of juxtaposing, like, STDs with, uh, with, with vampirism. But yeah. he, he doesn't seem like he's really trying to say anything in particular. Like, he doesn't, doesn't feel like there's any message, like it's a metaphor for anything. I think he just wanted to make a big movie about Dracula because it seems to be he really, he really had a lot of respect for the history. You can see it all over the screen. It's, it references artwork. It references literature, of course, biblical stuff. I mean, sure, yeah. What else was I going to say? I think the other thing we we're talking about the cast too. We we're kind of totally forgetting about Anthony Hopkins, who was another one. That I was going to say it wasn't until this viewing that I really clocked that it's him at the beginning as the priest. Yeah. I had completely missed that. I don't know why, because I saw it in a big screen, and I'm usually pretty good with faces, but. I'd miss that completely, that little stitch together of, you know, like, it's not just Mina who's going through, and Elisabetta who go through this over and over again. It's also the Van Helsings, which I kind of love. Yeah. There's always this conflict. Yeah, that, that was that was pretty cool. And his yeah. performance, and he too, is, was just kind of beamed in from <laughs> whatever. It was a weird take on Van Helsing. Yeah, he is just having the best time. I think that, like, he is the one actor who decided going in that he is going to enjoy himself no matter what else. I think Tom Waits is doing it, too. Um, yeah, Tom Waits is probably like next to Gary Oldman, my favorite, probably one of my favorite performances by Tom Waits. I don't mind. Oh, he's, I mean, if you want to cast a modern Renfield, or if you want to cast Renfield from a modern actor, he's a great call. Yeah, nobody, he's, I can't think of anybody else in that movie. Yeah, he's big, he's eccentric, he's imposing. He's much taller than I thought he was. I, I met him during TIFF one year, and I was just like, oh, you're like 6'3. That's, that's kind what? of imposing. I thought yeah, he was like he was a just, little dude. Right, he reads frail, doesn't he? Yeah, he reads kind of small. Yeah, no, he was here for, I guess it might have been, was it the year that he was here with the Gilliam film with uh, in 2009? Dr. Parnassus, is he in that? That might have been it. But I just, I, I was walking down a hallway and there he was and just scribbling in a little notebook. And it's like, this is exactly how I want Tom Waits to look, except he's bigger. <laughs> and I just, I said hi and he's like, hey. and that was great. That's awesome. Yeah, he's a uh, he's one of my heroes. And I didn't even realize like it was Tom Waits. That's another thing too, because this is pre-internet too, right? I mean, it, like there's no sure. there's no hey, I'm gonna Google a movie and learn everything I need to know about everything. So I had been listening to Tom Waits forever, and yeah. I actually didn't really know what he looked like because it's like these videos or whatever aren't on heavy circulation. And this was even sure, before no, time. Too. Yeah, this is uh, before time too, where, I, like I said, I even really understood that there was occupations that you could do this for a living. Because I'm still on the res, and I'm still stuck in res time. So the idea that you know that all these things are connected was just totally lost on me. I didn't really discover it till later, and I was like, "That's Tom Waits," and he's one of my biggest. He's, he's not even one of them. He's easily my biggest music hero. And huh. to see him in the film, 
it was like uh, it was like all my tastes and art just justified themselves. Oh, I love when that happens. So, how did you discover weights? I mean, I music, I don't I assume, even know, I, man, because I don't remember. I just saw he's he's his CD. Rain Dogs was in a bargain okay. bin, and I was like, oh, that's an interesting title. And I just picked it up for, I don't know how much I paid for it. And I brought it home. The first Tom Waits song I ever heard was Clap Hands. And it was off of, okay. off of Rain Dogs. And that was it. That was it. Like, it, it was one of those one of those catalyst moments in your, in your youth. It was almost like losing your virginity. <laughs> because it completely changed me as a, a writer, uh, as a musician, and as a person. Because viewed the world the same way, same kind of clanky, rustic way that I viewed it and experienced it. So to see that put in such a perfect auditory form, it was like, a, it helped form me. It's, 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 I don't think it's an accident either that these two artists, you know, collided and created this character because of, like, I could see where they cross over. And it's all this world of high pop art that you know you don't know exists behind the films because you don't really look past it as a kid so once i discovered that it became like a, like a goal to become as good as these people of course you never know achieve it, but that's not the point i mean the point is the, the journey <laughs> yeah so, no it gives you something to chase yeah right? like it's an it's aspirational the other thing about this film too on top of the music is the music the music is like it's it's spectacular. That soundtrack is amazing, and it's the first time that I think that was the first soundtrack I've ever bought from a film. And uh, oh yeah, yeah, it was uh, it was so like lovelorn and, and dramatic. And imagine experiencing all that as a kind of awkward teenager. <laughs> Perfect timing. Yeah. Yeah, no, we all have those, like those those moments where the world comes into focus for you, where you just see things and, and experience things. It's, you know, I assume that's how the Catcher in the Rye felt in the 50s for another really weird reach to people there. That it's just, because Bram Stoker's Dracula, despite coming from a revered American filmmaker, a guy who's won multiple Oscars and is basically, you know, royalty already, it feels like outsider art. It feels like he was left alone with some toys and he came up with this thing. It doesn't, I mean, I, the thing I keep comparing it to, it's not the Godfather movies, it's Tucker. Um, uh, I don't know if you've, if you've seen it. It's the 1988 movie he made about Preston Tucker, the, the um, automotive designer starring Jeff Bridges. That thing looks and was shot intentionally to look like a promotional film from the Tucker Corporation, right? It's the most commercial and polished thing you'll ever see. It's beautiful, but it is definitely designed to be um, all veneer, and then there's a soul underneath that, that slowly comes out because that's what the, the point of the movie, that's what Coppola's doing. But then you see Dracula, and it's messy, and it's slapdash, and Godfather 3 has this this beauty and this prestige to it, but you don't, you don't connect to it in the same way because everybody is clearly just kind of going through the motions. And then he just yeah. turned around and made this, and it's messy, and it's like he's he cut himself and bled on the print or something. There's this weird sense that it is coming out of him 
despite all of these collaborators, that it's almost like he's willed it into existence. And that handmade aspect is part of it, I think. If he'd, yeah, if he'd gone with CG, none of it would have worked. Or at least certainly not 1992 CG. It wouldn't have worked as well. But the, the sense that you're watching, like there's levers and pulleys and people are on stilts and all of this insanity is going on and swirling together. It's just, it's such a delight to watch it from moment to moment and think about how it was put together and how how many people are involved in every stage and they're all just dancing to his tune. Oh my God, just the idea of uh, <laughs> the street scene. This is all shot in a studio too, right? Yeah, So there's yeah. like fucking 200 people on that street and they're all in Victorian costumes, Edwardian costumes, whatever it is. And Coppola's like, let's shoot this on the bollocks. <laughs> oh my God. Imagine being a producer on that film. It's like, you want to shoot it on a Bolex. <laughs> okay. And there's so many beats like that in the film where it's like, we're going to take this grand, elaborate construction and we're going to filter it through this this, this uh, process, this ancient process that, that would make most filmmakers shudder at the thought of yeah. losing resolution. And it's like, we're going to do all that. And it's just, uh, it works, man. And that's the thing. Like, when, when the film... When the film works, it's a masterpiece. And even when it doesn't, like I can see past it. Like I don't, I don't get hung up on Keanu Reeves' performance or sure, sure. You know, like <laughs> good example would be that that scene where the three ladies come out of. That was my first introduction too to uh, uh, the the Italian French actress. Oh, uh, Monica Bellucci. Yeah, Monica Bellucci, and. That's the only thing I saw in that scene. <laughs> I wasn't thinking about Keanu Reeves. I was thinking about how bizarre, like everything is. Like he juxtaposes sexuality with violence so well, and then the end of that whole scene, a baby gets eaten. I mean, it's like demented. The whole thing is crazy, and it's it's like a hardcore film, a hardcore horror film. Like I, I think people lose sight of that too, but there's some real real elaborate gore sequences in there and they're oh, yeah, beautiful yeah, yeah. too they're like beautiful set pieces the the vampire uh lucy the vampire getting beheaded i mean like, yeah no this is this is what i mean i think that really the film peaks with that sequence just because it's so wild and intense and emotional somehow and uh, and we haven't mentioned the the supporting cast of um the buddies the ringers of you know, they're, they're not, the book doesn't care about them. The movie doesn't care about them. They're just there to forward the story. Um, but the actors are still trying to register in any way they can. And I think it's kind of great that Billy Campbell is just going so big as the cowboy because that's how Stoker wrote the character. And Richard E. Grant is this seething, confused Dragon. dandy, effectively. Yeah. yeah. Who's just, who's destroying himself with drugs while trying to treat the, the people who are least fortunate. And then you've got Carrie always just being an upstanding gentleman whose entire life is falling apart around him. It's so weird watching, uh, I was, like I said, binge watching Downtown Abbey. And oh, yeah. It's, it's like, uh, it's like a, it's like a nature show for that period. So. <laughs> yeah, like, actually, that's a good way to put it. Totally, totally what it is. And it makes me understand the propriety and the, and the, the help will to make these social graces matter 
Like, no matter what happens, yeah, yeah. they're it's just going to live by these standards. Like, their whole lives can be dictated. I mean, in a lot of ways, it's it's like the linchpin to a lot of Edwardian fiction because it's, it's like everybody's honor-bound. And I think that's kind of a little bit of what you get with uh, these three guys, right? They're all honor-bound. Like, otherwise, how do you convince somebody to uproot and just take off, go hunt the vampire? They just yeah. buy in right away. And it's like part of all the craziness that Coppola, like the, self, the self-contained the self logic, right, of the, of, the, of the film world, that they sure. don't really explain really any of this the way... Uh, the way Van Helsing can materialize and dematerialize. Oh, that's right. He has his little illusion trick. Yeah. Like, they don't really get into it. They're just there, occupying their space. And I think that's, you know, that's, that's kind of added to some of the clumsiness of that third act of the chasing. But, uh, I think you needed a, a red shirt. You know what I mean? Like, uh, yeah. You needed to beam down a red shirt for that last scene. Somebody had to die. <laughs> and, yeah. And it's our poor cowboy. Yeah, yeah, everybody can relate to a cowboy. Well, but he doesn't, and he doesn't belong there, right? Like he's in a place that he he shouldn't be. He's um, he's in he's the invader just as much. Well, he's not the invader, but he was when he was courting uh, Lucy. He was just as much of an invader in his way as the vampire, right? I mean, if Dracula is the the arrival of sex and desire into the surface of of English culture, right? Because their whole thing is not talking about it and buttoning it up and refusing to act on their their impulses to the point where Lucy's speech early on, that conversation Lucy and Mina have about wouldn't it be nice to actually get laid, they can't use those words and Mina is horrified by it, the possibility of pleasure and Lucy's all into it, which of course means she's the one who has to die because it's yeah. that mentality. And then you've got um, an American who just, you know, he says what he feels and he's got a big knife and he runs around and <laughs> he he can't make it to the other side of the story either. The whole point of the film is that, the whole point of the story is that, um, you know, propriety must be restored. And there's also this whole other thing that I wish Coppola had gotten into. He doesn't approach it even. And it's because he's American rather than British. But there's this whole thing about Dracula as an interloper. He's buying his nobility. He's pushing himself yeah. on polite British society. Yeah. Um, he's not, you know, he's Eastern European. He's not proper. He's not a Christian. And so all of these things are elements that are driven out by the book. In the, in the book, they're driven out by the good English people. And Van Helsing is, you know, he's probably foreign, but he's been living here long enough that we were okay with it. It's just one of those really strange touches that this movie does not see at all. And I wish somebody would deal with those issues in a proper Dracula adaptation. It just, it never happens. And it's the thing that's now, like, it just feels I, the most... probably, uh, I think a lot of people think the sexuality is dealing with it. I think that's probably their their version of it. I mean, it, it seems mm. to be more... I mean, it's, it's the lower-hanging fruit, for sure. Sure. Yeah, I, I mean, think. it's true. It is, it's another type of invasion, and it absolutely is about corrupting... The, the good British women, right? Like, that's the other way you could read it. But I just, the class, you, you mentioned Downton Abbey, and I would love to, to hear the conversations that those characters have about Dracula living next door. They don't even have to be bitten. I just want to know how they respond. <laughs> it's kind of weird, uh, because there is a storyline like that where the, one of the ladies of the house the, is going to get married to some new money. 
and everybody uh, everybody finds it so distasteful. And there's this real patrician elder matriarch that's like the comedic central of the whole show that always oh. that always reacts to like I fell in love with her almost in the first episode or second episode where she stops and she goes, "What's a weekend?" <laughs> and she goes, "She didn't know what a weekend was because she never had to work a day in her life." It was just a perfect example of, of how out of touch that, that section of society was during the time. Yeah, the gentry. Sure, they'd never had they'd never had their lives touched by anything. Well, that was about to change too, right? Mm-hmm. It's like World War One and the Spanish flu, and then World War Two, and then you smacked the Great Depression in the middle of all of that, and then it's like the Great Equalizer. Everybody comes out on the other end of all of that. Like everybody's going to get the American dream, and here we are, you know. 60, 70 years later, living that American dream. Oh, it's just awful. Um, but I mean, in a way, and this actually gets me to to blood quantum in a, in a sort of a direct line, which is also about a closed society trying to figure out what to do when the world changes. Right? I mean, these are all people who are trapped with each other and safe as long as they stay trapped with each other. And it's mercy that ends up undoing almost everything. It's sort of the opposite of Dracula, where the invading forces, it's not like the, the invading force in, in Blood Quantum isn't the zombies. It's the people. It's the it's the it's the townies. It's the whites <laughs> who are yeah. right, seeking refuge. Yeah. I mean, uh, I think if you have a little Canadian cinematic history, you're going to see the beats in Blood Quantum from Alan East's films. And I think you're, you're yeah. trying to bring a lot of that into the messaging behind blood quantum and i think it has to do with that but it also has to do with this idea of native people being damaged to the point where they're they're irredeemable and the tragedy of that happening and i think that's covered with the lysol character where he becomes so enraged that turns on his family, he mm-hmm. turns on his friends, he ultimately turns on himself. And it's a post-colonial mentality, a colonized native person, self-loathing, that wants to destroy everything around him because he doesn't know how to experience happiness anymore. And I think that was part of the messaging behind Blood Quantum. I mean, I think the explicit message there is anti-colonial, but I think when you start talking about anti... or when you start talking about... Uh, colonialism, I think you need to include how it's damaged the self-worth of, of Native people as much as the the livelihood. I mean, when you start talking about it in terms of, of, of losses and gains, you're still measuring things by a capitalistic metric, if you will. Sure, Whereas yeah, I think yeah, of course. Native people exist or are existing in a little bit more of a spiritual plane, and I think there's a, a sickness there. And I think metaphorically, we're trying to get into that in Blood Quantum a little bit more. And I think you get distracted a little bit because, of, you know, there's chainsaws and whatnot. So <laughs> I think it's easy to forget about looking at the native people in the film. Looking beyond the, uh, looking, seeing, seeing the pubic hair for the severed penis, as it were. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's good to have them both in the frame. <laughs> yeah. So I think that is geared more towards the native audience whereas I think the, the anti-colonial message I think everybody can refer to that because we're in the throes of that whole system failing 
Sure, sure. I mean, yeah. when you say colonialism, you're really talking about capitalism. When you talk about measuring capitalism by how many deaths you can prevent or 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 enable, in this case with the virus, you forget that that weight and measure was already taken when the when the uh, when the continent was was what's the word I'm looking for? Colonized, invaded, stolen. Yeah, they're all good. Yeah. Circle D, yeah, <laughs> all of the above. Yeah. So I think, I think that's that's kind of what's going on, partly in, in, in blood quantum. But I think again, it, it has to do a lot with the spiritual damage uh, inflicted by, by the whole process on native people and how it still manifests itself today. Even though these characters won't sit there and say, you know, I'm like this because a boat showed up one day, but I think you can start tracing it back. And again, it's not just Native people, it's everyone. I think Indigenous people have been at the forefront, but it's filtered through time, and now it's starting to hit everybody, where everybody's beginning to realize that they're not worth more than a dollar to the people in charge. Yeah, there's this growing sense that we've all been... What what just happened um, last week? Somebody... Oh, um, there was a repricing of insulin. It basically just dropped to nothing. And it was just sort of an admission that it never had to be expensive in the first place. That the of pharma course. companies is just like, nah, you know what, we're, we'll, we're doing this. As a, every time I see an ad that says, you know, we're helping our frontline workers, we're saluting our frontline workers, like, great, can you pay them more? Can you actually, if you call them heroes, can you pay them what they're worth? Rather than waiting for the government to mandate a pay raise, which is the way everything seems to be going. Yeah. We're just in this place where we're all figuring out what the next move is and how we all survive collectively. And the idea that we have to survive collectively is somehow alien, which is what Blood Quantum's all about too, right? I mean, it's about the, the larger, the beauty of horror movies is the metaphor can apply to almost anything, except that- Perfect have, way to put it. That's exactly, that's exactly, say that again. <laughs> because it's a it's perfect, perfect way to put it. Getting together is an alien concept in this day and age. Yeah. Where it's, it seems to be, I don't know. I mean, I, I hate to be, uh, you know what it is, man? It's it's getting to the point where you don't know how to engage in it. Like, mm. You don't know how to care because it's overwhelming. Like it's uh, everybody calls it kind of like the Trump effect, where he, he kind of shows up and he shovels a bunch of shit on you, and you don't even know how to react to it because it's all overwhelming. And I think that's kind of where everybody is, not only. Not only with the late stage capitalism, but spiritually, it feels like collectively everybody has been shown that humanity has to change, and, and everybody's horrified. Not so much because of the virus, because you know, honestly, we've had viruses and everybody's gotten over it. But I think everybody is finally realizing for the handful of idiots being the, the lone people trying to hold everybody back that this system has failed and needs to change. And I think apocalypse horror and, and apocalypse science fiction is the first iteration of that desire where you oh, start yeah. to see people wanting to see this, this culture change. And it's, it's weird because... It seems our modes of change, in this case, is entertainment. And it's like, 
it's weird being a native filmmaker and fostering the idea of change by the very thing that has helped define native people as villains for the past hundred years and that's cinema it's it's the whole thing man it's it's hard to wrap your head around it's like we'd have to do a class <laughs> on 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 colonialism and cinema how to unpack it all and how it relates to like the overarching themes in our society and how it affects us as people i mean it's 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 uh it's weird that people do not see the connections between propaganda, cinema, entertainment, and who they're picking for their leaders. Mm-hmm. And how being force-fed, well, not even force-fed it, because people, like, the very act of observing denotes a passivity. So you're not even being force-fed. It's not like you're, you're Alex and Clockwork Orange. Everybody's willingly in front of their television being force-fed this bullshit. Yeah, we're, think as, we're soaking in it I all think, the time. Yeah, I think as a native person, you're more hyper aware of it because you've been looking at yourself being misrepresented for your entire life. So you're already inherently distrustful. So it's, it, I think it's fitting that this perspective would be coming from a native person. This idea that this new world society, everything has changed and things that you value no longer take precedence here. Money doesn't matter. Your, your skin color doesn't matter. Your level in society doesn't matter. The only thing that matters is the collective. Yeah. And, and I was going to say, of course, and that's what a virus does. It makes you all human, regardless of like, regardless of your social status or your racial status or your gender or whatever. You're you're all going to end up in the same place if you come into contact with this thing. Yeah. Yeah. Ideology won't save you. And uh, exactly. The the I think the thing we need to do the thing well we're yeah we're in an existential crisis and that has to mm. keep going that's that's the thing that I I'm most hopeful for is that after the pandemic and we after the pandemic we find a way to keep caring for each other and you know I I just again there's an election coming up in the states in November and and they're going to default to that same messaging where caring for other people is a sign of weakness and social conscience is communism. And they just keep fighting the same battles rhetorically over and over and over again. Um, I just, I have to believe, I mean, at this point I'm basically rooting for the virus to take out all the older politicians anyway in the States. And (laughs) so we can start fresh. I'm hoping Elizabeth Warren is somewhere frantically washing her hands and she'll be okay to, to jump in after Biden gets sick. But it's just, it's such a nightmare that that we've reached this point. And it, yeah, as you say, it takes a plague to get people to wake up and realize that there's a better way to do things. Like if you're a fucking storyteller right now and you're in this political spectrum where the blue hairs are the reason that you're, you're being held back and then there's <laughs> a plague that comes and targets them. Yeah. Like it doesn't target them, but it targets their, their age bracket. Yeah. I mean... Like how do you how do you compete with that? Because it's it's ridiculous, <laughs> and it's like as a storyteller, you're you're being outpaced by reality. There's no there's no there's no keeping pace with Trump's craziness because it's every day. Like you can't keep up with that. It's like a it's a soap opera without without the without the effort of, of producing it. You know what I mean? <laughs> Yeah, it's you know what it is. Oh, Everybody I, likens it to reality TV, and that's exactly what it is. Sure, and it's just like 
But it's not. It's not reality TV. We've just been force-fed that so fucking long. You can't tell the difference. And you're treating it the same way as if it doesn't matter. But it's going to define you and your family and your your family's family for the next hundred years. Yeah. Like how they experience the world. Also, reality TV would be better written. There'd just be more of a structure to it. This is just chaos. <laughs> exactly, right? Like, who the fuck thought that you would need to do a PSA on not to drink bleach? <laughs> and it's, it's it's like it's already on the bottle. Like, yeah. how do you how do you need to reinforce that statement? Yeah. And it's like how how do you even begin to approach the idea that you're even going to need to do that in the 21st century in the age of Aquarius when we're all supposed to be enlightened after you know 20 and 30 years of having all the information in the world at our fingertips. It's like the polar opposite app. Yeah. Well, it's, we always assumed that in the 21st century, everybody would be able to read. We just, you know, that's not happening anymore. <laughs> well, that's why you make that's why you make zombie films, right? Because you'd rather talk about what's going on in a zombie film and have that relate to your life than, you know, your life relate to the zombie film. And it's kind of like everything's been flipped. Yeah, no That's kidding. kind of what we're doing now. We're talking about our life as if it were... A fictional zombie apocalypse and that's fucking crazy yeah it's it's these films it's strange to say that these films help us process it that's our function as artists yeah We're keeping everybody from losing their minds like if you're home watching in my case uh downtown abbey but if you're watching anything i mean thank that artist man because he's keeping you sane and he's helping you emotionally process all this stuff like how many people started watching contagion yeah. Oh, I know. This this thing first started, and it's like it gives you an idea of how the plague is going to play out. But don't expect the don't expect your officials to be as competent as they are the ones in the the film. Yeah, no kidding. I mean, everybody's turning to the movies about this stuff because they give you structure. They give you an ending. They show you exactly as you say. They show you how you're going to get out of it. But again, they're giving you an idealized vision. Also, everybody's pretty, which I think is also soothing. Our, our leaders are not necessarily quite so, uh, well, Justin Trudeau's got a good jawline. But other than that, I think we're dealing with uh, <laughs> the, the B-list. Yeah, it's a, uh, I cannot think of a crazier time to be alive than right now. Maybe during like the turn of last century when you had like <laughs> the 1910s, 20s, 30s, 40s being batshit crazy. But yeah. I think we're, we're almost, it seems like we're almost tumbling into that same kind of chaos right now uh anyway that's encouraging zombie movies yes well <laughs> it's a perfect time to release a zombie movie yeah it is weird did you know they didn't actually release zombie films in china no when no, like, they don't ever release, no they don't release them they don't buy them they don't advertise them i didn't know this until uh until well we were trying to sell the zombie movie i can't it's like, well, we got every market except China. Why? <laughs> they just don't. Well, they don't. Yeah, they don't buy them. Huh. Like, really? Because yeah, it's like zombies comparing the zombies to the communist proletariat or whatever. Oh, so I think the, okay. The comparison. That's interesting. So there's a metaphor that the, even the zombie movie can't penetrate. Yeah, <laughs> and it's weird because it's like. Uh, it's such an old interpretation of what zombies are. Hmm. Like that, for me, that that metaphor went out. That consumer 
zombie consumers and stuff. That was Dawn of the Dead. Yeah, yeah, that's like 40, 45 years ago. Yeah, it's, it's like, I think the zombie needed to come back into the political spectrum, but I think, you know, that idea of consumerism, it's not the consumer now. I mean, it's it's more the, the, the metaphor seems to have shifted not to the consumer, but to the producer. Yeah. It's like, it's not the, 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 it's not the consumer that's the mindless zombie. It's it's kind of like the the force of industry that's the mindless zombie, indiscriminately consuming everything in front of it, regardless of who it destroys. I mean, that sounds a little bit more on par with, with zombies. Yeah, I mean, it sees us. It sees the humans as the raw material, right? Like we get turned into the product. Yeah, I've been saying this for years, man. That the uh, the, the real commodity of uh, capitalism isn't money. It's it's human. It's human beings, and it's just like they they procreate like bunnies. So I mean, it's there's plenty of them around. <laughs> and the weird thing about this 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 xenophobia of China is like, how are capitalists going to consummate that xenophobia with China's human rights record and cheap manufacturing? Yeah, I mean, there's no way you just. Even even Canada just sort of dodges it whenever it comes up. We just overlook it because it's inconvenient. Yeah, <sighs> and that's it. So again, you're talking about the structure that needs to topple, and I think that's really what blood quantum is about. It's about wanting to topple that system, and you see, you see that image, right? I mean, that's the the image of the the second act is is that world is crumble that world has fallen apart the mill no longer works and then you see that that, that homage to 207 years of resistance that first introduction to that world where you see the definitive power structure change from the soldier the the symbol of authority to this punk zombie killer and i think that messaging is there and then you tune in you know, five minutes later where you're getting a young girl, uh, one of these sacred symbols of not only cinema, you never killed children in, in cinema, right? Right, yeah. But of, of, of our culture, it's like, I'm trying to show non-Native people how their culture treats our children in Black Quan. If anybody's wondering why the kids don't fare so well <laughs> <laughs> in, in that film. I think that's one of the things that we were trying to do, or I was trying to do, was to, to flip that script on its on its back and flip everything where the real danger, you're getting a sense of the danger, not really coming from the zombies, like you said, but from people, these colonized native people that are looking to, for lack of a better word, find a solution to this you know, to this idea that these guys can affect their new found society. Yeah, they've been turned into their own destroyers. Exactly. So, yeah, I gotta watch this movie again because I haven't seen it in a while. <laughs> <laughs> so, I don't think I've seen it since Tiff. And I'm, I'm, I'm been listening to other people's interpretations of it, and a lot of the beats are there. But like I said, the virus has framed it in a different light now. Yeah, no kidding. As big a take on colonialism as it does on our current capitalist-centric society, 
Yeah, well, this is the perfect time to direct people to it. So let's let them find it. And uh, yeah, this this has been great. Thank you so much for the time. No, no problem. I, I mean, uh, I very rarely get a chance to talk about the movie. It was either that, you know, the other one I was going to pick. No, shoot. The one that I, I constantly go back to, Roadhouse. The best, the best worst movie ever made. Oh, in my opinion. Okay, that would have been fun too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because there's a big. Uh, I draw a lot of inspiration for Ryan's from Roadhouse. It would be fun to kind of go through the beats and talk about where I crossed the stream. Yeah, I can kind of see that in rhymes. Yeah, that that and uh, that Conan the Barbarian. Oh well, I mean that's just everywhere. Yeah, that was another one I was going to pick. Next time. My thanks to Jeff Barnaby, whose new movie Blood Quantum is now available on demand in Canada and on Shudder everywhere else in the world. You want a pandemic movie? It's a pandemic movie. Thanks also to Kate Parks. She knows what she did. You can find Jeff on Twitter at Tripgore, T-R-I-P-G-O-R-E, and you can find Bram Stoker's Dracula on 4K, Blu-ray, and DVD from Sony Pictures Home Entertainment. It's also available on iTunes and Google Play and streaming on Netflix in Canada. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Norm Wilner and elsewhere on the internet at NowToronto.com, where in addition to my film duties, I'm hosting a new podcast called Now What, where I interview Torontonians about the weird new normal of self-isolation in the time of COVID-19. You can find that Tuesdays and Fridays in your podcatcher of choice, and you can find this podcast on Twitter at Semcast, S-E-M-Cast, and on the web at SomeoneElsesMovie.com. Our theme song is by The Last Year. If you like it or you like the show, say so. Leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts or wherever you've been enjoying us. Every little bit helps. It truly does. And check out the other shows on the Frequency Podcast Network. Jordan Heath Rawlings' The Big Story continues to be essential listening every weekday. Stay inside. Watch movies. I'll see you next week. <laughs>